The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation. Because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperice.com. This episode is brought to you by J. Crew. This spring, J. Crew is telling a linen love story. From perfectly rumpled beach cover-ups and effortlessly sexy suiting to button-up shirts from the world-famous Baird McNutt Mill in Ireland, the new J. Crew collection is made to be shared, lived in, and loved for decades and generations to come. Shop linen like you've never seen it. And more new arrivals for spring 2024 at jcrew.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The chances are that few people will have heard of David Ingram. But in the 1560s, this Tudor explorer embarked on a remarkable 3,600-mile trek across North America. In the process, Ingram and his two colleagues encountered sights and sounds that no other English person had ever experienced before. Dean Snow is the author of a new book on Ingram, and he's written a feature about the explorer for BBC History magazine. Here, he tells Spencer Mizzen about how Ingram's remarkable journey transformed England's relationship with North America. Dean, your feature in the March issue of BBC History magazine tells the story of a truly extraordinary journey when, in the late 1560s, a man called David Ingram and two of his colleagues trekked 3,600 miles across North America between the coasts of Mexico and Canada and somehow lived to tell the tale. In doing so, they became the first Englishman to explore the interior of North America and, as you write in your feature, changed the course of the continent's history in the process. Now, that's a pretty remarkable feat and could only be undertaken by some pretty remarkable people. 
We're going to concentrate today on David Ingram because our knowledge of his journey is based on his testimony. So my first question is, what kind of character was Ingram and what do we know about his life before he embarked on this incredible journey? We don't, we don't know much uh, other than what we can infer from his background and uh, where he grew up. He tells us that he was born and raised in Barking, which is now a, a suburb of London, but at the time was close enough for him to be able to go to London and get involved in sailing. Uh, ships often were equipped at the Tower and then uh, sent down the Thames to the Medway, where they would wait until there were orders to sail. So he was well positioned to get involved as a mariner in uh, British shipping. So he was an ordinary sailor, probably illiterate. We know nothing much about him. We don't know what he looked like, but we can give it a good guess based upon just the general population of England at the time. And he decided to become a mariner on uh, ships that left down the Thames from London, with often a stop at Plymouth, from which they launched larger efforts. And that's about all we know about him. He had no education. He was not a gentleman. Uh, He was an ordinary uh, sailor, uh, mostly anonymous, because ships' rosters do not survive from that period. And so we have only his own testimony to know where he was and when. So how does a sailor born embarking end up traversing America on foot? How did this incredible journey come about? Because this was far from planned, wasn't it? It was not part of the plan. The The plan was to undertake a slaving expedition. One of the very first, John Hawkins, was the commander of the small fleet. He had the backing of the Queen and other investors. The idea was to go to Africa, acquire slaves, then sail to the Caribbean, which Hawkins had done previously, and sell these people illegally to Spanish colonists, and then return home with a tidy profit. But they chose to come home in hurricane season, and they weren't aware of what could happen in the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico at that time of year, and they got caught by a huge storm, which forced them to land on the coast of Mexico for repairs. They would not have got across the Atlantic without repairs, and new supplies. And uh, so they ended up going to the port of San Juan de Ulua, which is at modern Veracruz. So can you tell us a little bit about the balance of colonial power in North America in the 1560s? I mean, would I be correct in saying that in terms of the colonization of the continent, the French and the Spanish were very much the dominant forces and that the English were were playing catch-up at this time. They were, and the English got off to a fairly good start at the beginning of the century. But as we all know, Henry VIII had all sorts of interests that did not extend to colonization at that time. And uh, so although there were a lot of ships sailing out of Bristol at the time of Cabot, There were not very many official efforts uh, to colonize until much later in the century. Uh, And so they were playing catch-up. And by the time we get to the 1560s, the Spanish were well-established all around the Caribbean, especially on the Spanish Main, which is the north coast of South America, and in the islands, uh, including Cuba, 
And the French had explored the St. Lawrence in the north and had even attempted a colony, that is to say the the Huguenots had attempted a a colony on the northeast coast of uh, Florida. And Hawkins and one of his ships actually stopped there on the second voyage. And I think that it's pretty clear that Ingram was on that second voyage and became aware of the colony in Florida. And this informed him later uh, about what they might do to get rescued. It turned out to be not possible there, but it was a well-known French colony at the time. The British uh, under Hawkins repeatedly claimed that they were sailing with the good graces of the King of Spain because Felipe or Philip had been married to Queen Mary. This was not a love match, uh, and yet Hawkins found it convenient to argue that the rules that Felipe had imposed upon the colonists around the Caribbean, that they should not trade with the English, in fact didn't apply because Felipe had been their king too. And so this was one of the ruses that he used to encourage colonists to trade with him illegally uh, under Spanish law at the time. Uh, and he was usually successful. It was There's this whole series of stories about how he cajoled the colonists into uh, trading with him when, in fact, they knew they would get in trouble later on if they did. So Hawkins' uh, fleet runs into trouble off the American coast, and we know that Ingram and his two colleagues are on board or, or with the fleet. So what happens next? How do they make the, this, this fateful decision that ends up in them embarking on this enormous journey across North America? Well, they had a bit of bad luck when they sailed into the San Juan de Ulua port. The Spanish treasure fleet showed up within days, and they had come from Spain for the purpose of loading all the treasure that had been collected the previous year and taking it back to Spain. They were well armed, and the ships were numerous in that fleet. The English then had to fight their way out of the port, and it was at terrible expense. So there were about 400 men in the English fleet. About half of them were killed or taken captive at the time of the battle. The other half escaped mostly on uh, the ship called the Minion. The flagship that was on loan from the Queen was sunk as were all the smaller ships except for one, which was captained by Hawkins' cousin, Francis Drake, who was very young at the time, just getting started in his own career. He managed to get uh, get out and uh, sailed home, but the Minion was left with about 200 men on it, most of them not crew members uh, of that ship. Uh, They were just people that managed to scramble aboard at the last second, They escaped and sailed northward, but they had no supplies to speak of, and they could not possibly get back to England with that many men aboard. So Hawkins put it to them. Who would like to go ashore and take their chances? Who would like to stay aboard and take their chances? And, oh, by the way, the following men are not allowed to take the shore option. Predictably, about half of them decided to go ashore. And once they had done that, many of them, eventually most, decided to turn themselves into the Spanish because it was a very hostile shore and they uh, were facing uh, natives in the area who were not friendly. But Ingram and his two buddies, Richard Brown and Richard Twyde, decided to 
head north because Ingram remembered the little French colony in northeastern Florida, and he thought that they could hike to that place uh, around the north shore of, of the Gulf of Mexico and perhaps find rescue from the French Huguenots. That's why they got started, and it took them months to get just that far. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter, because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com extra. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Upgrade your home now at Blinds.com's anniversary sale and celebrate savings up to 50% off premium window treatments for years to come. Shop 100% online for modern Roman and woven wood shades, shutters, motorized options, and more. Do the installation yourself or have Blinds.com handle it. Say cheers to Blinds.com's free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee. Shop Blinds.com's anniversary sale now for up to 50% off. Save up to 50% at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. So his decision to do that was informed by the fact that he'd been to the Americas before. He had been, he had touched on America before, and he had been to the colony in northeastern Florida, but really had no notion of what he was getting into on land. But they were able to basically plug themselves into a broad, widely flung network of well-used trails And like the previous explorers that the Spanish had sent, de Soto among them, he realized that the um, network of trails was heavily used by traders, native traders, who were moving on it all the time. And he picked up clues about how they could survive by moving along these trails as itinerant traders. They would have picked up the local sign language because there were lots of languages in America at that time, and they had to have ways of communicating that didn't involve learning a whole lot of languages. Uh, It was quite daunting that way. But he had been given bolts of cloth that Hawkins had thought they might be able to use as trade goods. So that was their initial stock and trade. But they eventually picked up a knowledge of what was desirable and marketable locally as well, and uh, would make sure that they had loads of valuable things that weren't too heavy that would prove to be more valuable down the road than they were where they picked them up initially. So they could make a profit going along the way, clothe themselves, feed themselves, and get shelter. Now, as you as you write in the feature, the, the, the three Englishmen picked up a few native words. They communicated with, uh, as you just said, the indigenous people in sign language. And near the end of the journey, they they stayed in a 
a northern Iroquoian settlement of bark longhouses. So, I mean, do we get a sense of how the indigenous people reacted to Ingram and, and his colleagues? I mean, were they were they helpful in many ways? They were. Uh, they were very curious. Now, here were these guys with light skin and very hairy. The idea of facial hair was something that they weren't accustomed to. And their real curiosities, they were dressed in an unusual way from the point of view of the Native Americans as well. Early on, at one of the towns that they went through, the local leaders um, invited them in and then stripped them of their clothing because they wanted to uh, see these guys up close and get a, a sense of what they were all about. So it was a, a bit like one of those films where astronauts from outer space visit Earth and there's a great deal of curiosity about uh, how they look. So they faced that every time they came to a new town. And yet here they were with goods that were highly desirable down the road and they were greeted and tolerated like any itinerant trader typically is in situations like this. Nobody wanted to harm them because they might come back later with even better things to trade. So the receptions were uniformly really very positive. Now, some of these people had had prior experience with Spanish incursions that were not nearly as friendly. And one would expect that that might have set Ingram and his uh, two companions up for hostile receptions. But in fact, they seem to have got along quite well. The site that you mentioned was in southern Pennsylvania, way towards the northeast at that point. And they stayed there a whole week because they were fascinated by what they found. And uh, he described that town, which he called Balma, in considerable detail. You also write in the feature that Ingram's testimony of this journey shines a really valuable light on onto the culture of North America's indigenous populations before North America was transformed by colonization. I wonder if you could elaborate on that a little bit, please. He was brought in for interrogation after he returned to England, 12 years had gone by by the time he was uh, brought in. But investors were getting interested in colonization on the east coast of America between where the Spanish were active and where the French were active in what is now Canada. The Queen declared that this should be called Virginia. And so in anticipation of settlement in Virginia, they needed to find out more about what this continent was all about. And here was a man who had the information they were seeking. So Francis Walsingham, the Queen's spymaster, brought him in for an interrogation. And they depended upon Ingram for alerting them to things that uh, they should expect to see. And these included the crops that Native Americans grew, which were American domesticates. Nobody had seen these things before. And uh, the way in which they made clothing and the way they housed themselves and uh, so on. And all of this predates the advent of the horrible epidemics that crippled and devastated the whole of North America later in the 16th century and throughout the 17th. So what we get is a look at what America was like before uh, those awful changes were wrought on the population. So tell us a bit more about that America. I mean, what would have Ingram have experienced that he'd never would have encountered before while while back in England? 
He was a particular, they were particularly, all three of them, astonished by uh, what they saw inside the longhouses in that village in Pennsylvania. They uh, reacted like good Christians at the time. What they saw was a curing ceremony, and uh, it involved masks. And they found the masks to be terrifying, but it was a curing ceremony conducted by a man who was attempting to scare away the evil spirits that were causing the disease. They misinterpreted what they were seeing uh, and reacted uh, in a sort of Old Testament ways to the, um, to the show that they were uh, observing. And that, I think, was where they showed the, the greatest amount of awe at what they were witnessing. They had seen things in Africa, too, that astonished them. And like all Elizabethans at the time, they were fascinated by cannibalism. And they were always asking uh, if there were cannibals around. And they were all, both in Africa and in uh, North America, uh, they were assured that uh, there were cannibals, but they were far away. And uh, so they were they were always getting stories about bogeymen who were um, at a distance, safe distance uh, from whoever was speaking, but they were assured that cannibalism was alive and well uh, at a distance. Do we get a sense of uh, what kind of emotional impacts this journey had on Ingram and his colleagues? I mean, they're, they're obviously in extraordinary peril, exploring places that no or very few Europeans have been before. And there must have been times when they just thought we're never going to get home. I mean, do we get a sense of that from his testimony? You you really don't. They talk about it in such a matter-of-fact way. And perhaps, you know, after 12 years later, after the experiences had uh, sort of faded in their memories, like most people, they remembered the good stuff and uh, conveniently forgot whatever it was that they found frightening at the time, with some exceptions. But it, it, it strikes me when I, when I read his words that he got comfortable very quickly. I think in northern Mexico, they had a tough time because the hunter-gatherers that were around them were quite hostile. And they would have seen it as appropriate to rob these people, uh, the sailors, and not think anything of it. But as soon as they got to uh, the coast of Texas and they were around uh, agriculturalists, now attitudes changed. Visitors were often usually welcome, and they were no exception. And they would have found themselves uh, comfortable, I think, under the circumstances that they had all the way from the vicinity of modern Houston to northern uh, Florida. When they got to northern Florida, the English or the Indians communicated to them somehow, usually I think through sign language, that the French outpost had been wiped out by the Spanish. Oh, what do we do now? Well, the only other place they uh, knew of uh, where they might find a ride back to England or France was Cape Breton in what is now Nova Scotia. And so without apparently much concern, they said, well, I guess we better go there now. Uh, that's got to be our new destination. So off they went. And like through hikers even today, they probably uh, hiked about, you know, 15 miles, 25 kilometers or so uh, every day. Uh, they had time to uh, re-equip, spend a night or two resting, 
rest up and get ready for the next leg of the journey. And they did it all in 11 months. They got eventually to what the Bay of Fundy before they were rescued. So can you just tell us a little bit about the, res- the rescue? Because that was quite extraordinary in itself, wasn't it? Yeah, they, they got as far as central Maine, and that's where the trails end. The people who lived there at the time traveled almost exclusively by birch bark canoe. There were no overland trails. The forests are just too dense and uh, in the most of the year too inhospitable for trails to be effectively used. So they traveled by birch bark canoe and they had the help of the Indians, got themselves as far as an outpost, a village on the upper St. John's River in New Brunswick. And um, it was there that the locals told them that they uh, had seen a ship at the mouth of the river. And so it was as far north as they ever got. They immediately booked another trip on the birch bark canoes and uh, headed south on the river until they got down to the Bay of Fundy. And sure enough, the ship was still there. And the uh, captain, uh, whose name was Champagne, agreed to take them back to France and England. And he uh, wanted first, however, to do a bit more trading. So they had come past a village that they thought might have something that the French captain wanted. And so they went back upstream to this village and uh, indeed did some trading. The French made some very unfortunate purchases there uh, that didn't work out for them later. But um, that was uh, a little reverse in their journey until the French were satisfied that they had a load of goods to take home and off they went. And they uh, spotted the lizard near Land's End after a very short journey compared to what one might expect from that era. But uh, they had the trade winds behind them all across the North Atlantic. Now, given the fact that David Ingram survived this incredible trek, given the fact that he and his two colleagues were the first Englishmen to explore the interior of North America, I mean, their names are they're not very well known, are they, today? I mean, I must have confessed until no. I read your feature, I'd never heard of them. So I'm wondering, this this lack of recognition may in part be due to a 1589 book called The Principal Navigations, Voyages and Discoveries of the English Nation, which was written by a man called Richard Heiklut. Now, this book told a, a version of Ingram's trek that, as you say, in your feature, exposed it to, to, to ridicule by generations of historians and seems to have kind of undermined Ingram's legacy. Now, why did it do that? Hacklut was a friend of Walsingham, and he spent uh, a decade or more gathering material for that massive publication. In most cases, the chapters that he acquired were written by the people who had experienced them. Hawkins himself wrote a chapter. Others who were on that expedition wrote chapters. But Ingram could not. What Hacklut had was the court recordings of uh, his testimony, of Ingram's testimony when he was interrogated in, in 1582. The people who did the interrogation were mostly interested in North America, and that's why they brought Ingram in. Ingram thought he was there to tell his story, so he told all of it. 
starting in Africa, then the Caribbean, and then North America. But when Hakluyt started editing all of this to make a relation on behalf of of Ingram, he found it impossible to organize it in any way other than topically. And he ended up putting all of it together in uh, by topical categories. And then at the very beginning said, this all relates to Ingram's long walk in North America. And so he included all kinds of observations from Africa and the Caribbean that had no place in that story. And that's how it was published. It was because Ingram didn't, or Hakulu did not know how to edit it all properly and botched the job. I am very lucky that I have had wonderful editors through my whole career, and I've written a lot of books and articles and have never been undone by an editor. But Hacklute was a good compiler, but not a good editor. And the result was that uh, he made Ingram seem to say all kinds of things that were inappropriate because they didn't apply to the area that they, of interest. Uh, and it was Samuel Purchas who first said in the early uh, 17th century, he was Hacklute's literary successor, by the way, he said, Ingram's a liar. You can't depend on him. And historians have followed suit ever since. They found, as difficult as it is to read, they found the relation that Hakulute had published to be readable. And they found the manuscripts to be pretty much not very readable. So just to give the listeners an example, am I right in saying that Hakulute, in Hakulute's account... There were elephants. Ingram described there being elephants, for example, in North America. Is that right? right? Yeah, and hippos uh, and iron tools. The, the Africans had iron tools and had them for a long time, and they used them in their everyday work, agriculture, fighting, warfare, all of that involved iron tools. So when you see uh, iron tools being described in eastern North America for that period, it's a tip-off that something's wrong uh, because there were no iron tools uh, on this side of the Atlantic, except for a few things made out of meteoric iron, which is not a reliable source, of course. And it was when I spotted the first 18 entries in that manuscript and realized they all related to Africa, nowhere else, I realized that uh, there was order there that Hacklut had missed. Sure. Now, in your feature, you write that Ingram's account of his epic journey would have a pr profound impact on the future of the American continent. I mean, why do you think that? Well, because it informed uh, the later uh, people that were involved in the, um, the British expansion. And of course, the Roanoke colony failed and the war with Spain intervene and uh, did not allow the uh, the further colonization to be picked up again until uh, much later. So British colonization really became a, a 17th century activity here uh, in northern and eastern North America. And so, it, you know, it had that effect on what subsequently happened. And our records of it uh, confirm uh, a lot of the things that Ingram saw first. But it's also the case that the fact that he saw them was what encouraged uh, people like Raleigh 
and uh, and his fo- and his successors, both here and for Raleigh, even in South America, he had decided to sail to South America as well in his later life, before he was imprisoned in the tower and things uh, uh, went badly for him. So in many ways, what happened over the next 50 or 60 years in terms of the English colonization of the yeah. of the Americas was informed to a certain extent by Ingram's experiences and his testimony. It, that's where it started. And, um, you know, here we are, we're speaking English. Uh, that would not have been, uh, might not have been the case if the, uh, if the French and the Spanish had been more aggressive about settling the middle coastal area of North America that they left between them for the British to work on. Uh, it might be a very com- completely different story. was Dean Snow. The Extraordinary Journey of David Ingram is published by Oxford University Press. And you can find the feature that Dean wrote on David Ingram in the March issue of BBC History Magazine. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 